This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. This school year, we're considering uh, one of the it's hard to say, you know, one of the most important parts of the Bible because, like Silas said to me the other day, he's like, Dad, it's all important, you know, because I was like, this verse is really great that we're going to be talking about on Sunday. It's all important, but the book of Romans has been instrumental in leading to significant change in our culture, especially in the last 500 years with the Protestant Reformation. Romans was a key book into understanding what does it mean to, to live by faith. And this passage that we're discussing this morning, Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17, is a, a really important passage that has influenced so many people to live in a way by faith. And so just a, just a kind of like a Romans reset, right? The church in Rome was one of the most significant cultural um, cities, a financial center. It was the center of the Roman government, obviously, and that's where their military was based in this city that had become uh, a, a massive influence in the Mediterranean, and there exists a church there. And remember, uh, last week I said that their faith had been being proclaimed all over the world. So we don't really know how big this congregation of people, this group of folks who are seeking to follow God and be faithful to uh, uh, to the Lord Jesus, not to be faithful to Caesar, but to be faithful to the Lord. We don't really know how big they were, but they were in a massive city with a military industrial complex and a financial center and a cultural center and also a, a pagan center where people essentially were able to do whatever they wanted to do. In terms of how you lived your life in relationships with other people, it was do what feels right to you. And here Paul is writing this letter to this church, to this congregation of folks who whose faith is significant, significant enough for other people in other places to have heard about it. And Paul, remember a guy who was a, a Pharisee who came from this religious tradition where he was, had strict observance of the law and he gave his whole life. He says at one point in Galatians, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He was pursuing righteousness as fast as and hard as he could. But then he met Jesus. And Jesus told him, you know, so, Paul, Saul, you're essentially persecuting me when you persecute my people. And Paul's eyes were opened. He, he saw who Jesus really was, and it deeply affected his life. And that's partly why he wrote what he wrote in this part of Romans today. So Paul is writing this letter to this church who's living in a major city that has a lot of social uh, tension, a lot of uh, politics, a lot of military, a lot of uh, cultural challenge. And so as we listen in on Paul's conversation to the church in Rome, we can kind of identify with them. Because it seems like in some ways the, the church is, is being marginalized, right? We are being pushed aside. And we're wanting to live faithfully for the Lord. We're wanting to serve God in, a, in an environment that is challenging for the believer. And so what does it mean for us not to, to bow down to, uh, to the government or to the culture or to even our own uh, desires but rather to bow down to Jesus. And that's kind of the setting where, where we're looking at this passage for this, for this letter. So we're going to be reading uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes... 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for Paul and his transformation and how he became a new person in you. And we know, Lord, you've reached down and made us new people as well. And so we want to hear what he's saying to the church in Rome because we can identify with what they're facing in some ways, even though it's a different time and a different age. We feel that pressure as well. And so I pray that as we listen to what you're saying, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, and that you'd help us to walk away from here a different person with one thing that you've called us to do in light of all that you've done. Help us to hear what that one thing is so that we can obey you that we can trust you and show the world that our Lord is Jesus Christ. So give us ears to hear and to apply your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before I begin the sermon, I wanted just to mention, if you've been doing the Romans Challenge, uh, and the Romans Challenge uh, this week is to memorize Romans 1, 16 and 17. It's two verses, but the Romans Challenge has been to read the book of Romans every day. Uh, If you've read it, you know what's coming next week. And so... What we're going to do next week, uh, because of the nature of the topic that Paul addresses in the Roman church, we're going to have a PG-13 sermon, right? PG-13 sermon. So when you take your child to the movie, uh, the Motion Picture Association, whoever does that, I know those, it's a sliding scale, some, it seems like they should be R, but they're PG-13 now, whatever. What this is parental guidance suggested for the sermon next week. So if your child is not ready for children's church yet, but also not ready for a PG-13 movie. We're going to have something for children in that category so that we can address the issues that Paul is addressing later on in Romans chapter 1. We want to be sensitive to that and realize that there isn't a point when children ought to be able to wrestle with these ideas as they get to be a certain age, but there may be folks in the room that aren't quite ready for that, so we want to provide options. So PG-13 sermon next week. I'm just gonna be, we're going to be packed out. Everyone's like, oh, PG-13. Those are the biggest, most popular movies right now. So this is going to be the biggest, most popular sermon next week, so don't miss it. Uh, but that's just a little, little precursor. There will be something for those in that category. So here's a question for you. How you living? How you living? This is a greeting that I've experienced in some places in my life. How you living? You know, it's kind of like how you doing, but how are you living? How is it going in your life? This emphasizes not the emotional experience that you're having, but maybe what is going on in your life? What are you doing with your life? How are you living? By what rubric, by what default setting are you living in the world today? When you face challenges, when you face difficulties, when you see the culture, when people come at you, what is your default operating system? How do you function in the world at your base, at your core? Are you a person that experiences joy in life and uh, fulfillment and hope? Are you excited about what's going on in your life and in the world for the most part? Or do you tend to approach the world with a sense of anxiety and fear? Are you worried about things? Are you angry about things? Do you feel a sense of bitterness? Now, I recognize that even for the most positive and hopeful person, there are times and moments when we feel uh, discouraged or frustrated. So I'm not saying that you've got to be one way all the time, but what's your default setting, right? You know, when you get a, a new phone or a new computer, it comes to you from the manufacturer, 
with a default setting. And then you can adjust it based on the things that are helpful for you and the way you work your system. But you get a default setting. You've got to go from there. What is your default setting? I think these verses today speak to what our default setting ought to be. What is our general mode of operating? What is our baseline functioning at what, the way we, of who we are? And I think Paul really gets to this in this verse. And this verse has essentially, literally changed the world. And there's a few things that I want to encourage us to think about through as we go through uh, this message. Paul th- says, he's speaking to us about the gospel, and he's going to tell us three things in my view. And there's so much more in this passage that we could be dealing with and focusing on. It's such a rich passage. It's only two verses, uh, but he's, he's going to tell us three things in this passage. First of all, what, how the gospel allows us to be or encourages us to be unashamed, empowered, and to live by faith. How are we unashamed, empowered, and to live by faith? So the first one that I want to talk about in Romans, the first part of Romans 16, I'm just going to reread that so it's fresh in our minds. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you felt ashamed? I remember once, when I, I, I can't remember how old I was, I asked my mom, I texted my mom about this story, and she didn't even remember it happened, and I realized that she didn't even know that this situation had happened. So mom, if you're watching, here's what happened. Um, I was probably seven or eight years old, and my brother had a game. I don't remember if he was playing soccer or football, but they were on a field over here, and there were bleachers, and behind this field was a baseball field with a dugout. Uh, and a dugout is the place where the baseball team who's getting ready to bat, where they hang out. And this dugout was made of concrete. And so we were just running around the field. I don't know who I was with, but there were other kids. And somewhere along the way, back when Coke bottles were made of glass, they found a trash can full of glass bottles. This would not work today with plastic bottles. It would not nearly have been as interesting with plastic bottles. But someone decided and saw and realized that if you throw a glass bottle against a concrete dugout, it makes a big deal. It's a big, the glass splatters everywhere, right? And so these kids were throwing glass bottles against the dugout and making them shatter. Well, yeah, I was like, well, that looks pretty fun. <laughs> so I got one bottle, and I threw it at that, at that dugout, and, man, it exploded. And it, 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 at age seven, it might have been the most thrilling moment of my life, right? It was just like, I knew that it was not the right thing to do. I, I shouldn't be doing this, but man, I wanted, I wanted to grab one of those bottles. And, well, we ran out of bottles and we realized, you know, let's, let's not play over by the dugout anymore. Let's go over here and play uh, somewhere else. And we just kind of went on about what we were doing. But then, at some point, a policeman came over to me. And now, what's a policeman doing at a football game? You're a youth football game? Because my brother would probably have been nine or 10. I have no idea, but he came over to me and he said, did you throw a glass bottle up against the dugout? And I just felt this sense of shame. I realized that I was busted. And I'm thinking, this is what was going through my mind. I only threw one. I wasn't the first one that did it. It wasn't that big of a deal. I don't want to go to jail. (laughs) I remember thinking, is this what people go to jail for? Because there's a policeman. But it's that feeling of like, oh man, I am busted. I knew it was wrong when I did it, but I wanted to do it anyway, and now that the law has come to confront me with my guilt, I feel ashamed. 
And so as I was thinking about that story, I asked my mom, I go, Mom, do you remember when the policeman came over to you? And she's like, no, I have no idea. I realized my mom never found out about this until yesterday. <laughs> and I don't even remember what the policeman said for us to do because it was like, you're not going to put these kids in jail. But I remember feeling really bad and saying, I'm sorry. Right? I was confronted with the law and being confronted with the law, and this, the law was being represented by this person. When I was confronted by the law, what it did is it brought up guilt and shame in me because I was acknowledging that I was wrong. Right? And thankfully, in the moment, I said, I'm sorry. Right? And that's, that's a picture of what the gospel is, right? It's like when we're confronted with the law, and the law is revealed to us most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, who himself was perfect and without sin. Like when we sing songs about the holiness of Jesus, what it ought to do in one sense is to help us to acknowledge that we ourselves are not holy, that we've been confronted by the pure law, and we are, uh, should be convicted of sin. But the good news of the gospel is that when we confess our sin, Jesus uh, allows us to be right with him because of what he's done, because he's perfect. He went to the cross. He, he died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. And so he doesn't come to confront us, to condemn us, but he comes to confront us so that we would acknowledge and to realize who we are as people because of sin is wrong. But he loves us. He loves us so much that he wants us to, to be confronted with who we are and then to respond with, with an act of confession. I'm sorry. And when we do, he receives us and he rejoices in us. Now the policeman, I don't remember if he gave me a hug or not. That was not how it went. But Jesus does that. And what Paul is saying here is, in the first part of this verse, he's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? What is shame? It's that sense of guilt that we have. When we know we've done something wrong, it's the feeling of disgrace associated with an act that we've taken or, or something that we've not done that we should have done. You know you violated the command of God or you know you've hurt someone that you love. And you realize it, and that feeling comes upon you. Now, we shouldn't live in shame, but that feeling, I think, is a good thing because it helps us to realize there's something not right. There's something not right with my relationship with God. There's something not right with my relationship with my spouse or my friend or my coworker or a person in my community. And what that does is it brings us the opportunity to be reconciled, which is what God desires for us. When we're confronted with our sin, it's always to bring restoration to bring renewal and to bring us back into right relationship with God. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would Paul say that? I mean, we know that Paul, man, he's the man. He's like planting churches all over, the, all over the world, right? Why would he say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, see, Paul recognizes as much or more than anyone what it means to have the gospel as the, the default operating system of his life. Right? Remember, he had said in the previous verse from last week, I long to, to preach to all of you in Rome. And I had suggested to you, submitted to you, that he meant more than just proclaim the word like from a pulpit. He was wanting to, he says, euangelion, which is the gospel, the evangel. I want to live out the gospel among you, in your community. And, and who, how could he do this? He, he, would, he had been a, a Pharisee, a strict observer of the, of the rules. He was always trying to do things right. But when Jesus revealed himself to him, when Jesus came to him to present the law, Paul realized, I haven't been living my life in a righteous way. I've just been doing things to seem righteous on the outside. My heart has not been right with God. And Jesus forgave him. 
and they brought reconciliation. And then Paul uh, became uh, not, uh, not an angry person who wanted to persecute and to harm, but he became a humble and joyful and sacrificial person. And he knew that that message, that message that says that there's nothing that you can do to earn your standing with God needed to be cast away. But it also means that there's, there's nothing that you can do to make, make up your own rules that you can abide by. So there's te- there tends to be two kinds of people in the world. Three, actually. There's the one person that says, well, the way I'm justified, the way I'm made righteous, to use the word that Paul uses in this phrase, is to say, I'm going to obey the laws. I'm going to obey the cultural norms and mores that are around me. And if I do a good job at that, then I'm justified. I'm in with the right people. I have the right attitude. I'm in with the right community. And we know what's right and what's wrong. So we're justifying ourselves by the law. That's the religious person. And then there's the irreligious person. They says, well, you need to just cast off all that law. What we don't need is, is more rules. We need less rules to be, to be free, to find yourself, and to do whatever your heart desires. But in the end, that person is making their own law too. They're making, they're making their own rules and saying, I've made this set of rules to live by, and now I'm judging you for not living by my rules. Well, there's a third way, right? That's the gospel way, is to acknowledge that there's a holy standard of righteousness that God demands because he is holy. And he will not receive us or be reconciled to us unless that law has been fulfilled in a proper way. But he knows that we can't keep it. And so that's why he enters into the person of Jesus to say now, in light of what I've done, you have freedom to make mistakes. You have freedom to falter and to fail. And I love you. And so Paul says, this is the most profound message that's ever been given. And yet it's so simple, people would probably mock it. And don't people mock it even to this day? It can't be that easy. Why would you follow a God like that? Some people over here would say, well, there's too many rules in Christianity. And we say, well, we don't live by the rules. We live for Jesus. He's the one who's fulfilled the rules. This group of people says, oh, well, that's a bad way of living because you're just making up whatever you want to do. But we say to these people, there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. We can't be right enough. And so then we're humble. and We acknowledge that we're broken. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that message because it's the way to really live. And when the gospel message is your default operating system, if you mess up on keeping the rules, you can live in freedom. You can live in joy. You can say, yes, Lord, I know. I've messed up. You can say to your community, to your friends, or your family members, yes, I've really really blown it. It's actually even worse than you know, but I know that Jesus loves me, and he saved me, and he's claimed me, so I'm not ashamed follow Jesus because he's everything to me you see we're susceptible to what Paul was before right this this uh, judgmental center this this desire to say well these people are in and these people are out and often what we'll do is we'll look at a cultural thing a non-essential matter and say well you should be living the way that we're living because this is how my culture says that you should be faithful But Jesus is saying, those cultural things are less important than a person who loves me and who's made righteous by me. See, the gospel says that these rules are established by God, and we have not kept them. And so we have reason to feel ashamed. But we have a Savior who's come to us to provide life and hope and healing and and reconciliation so that we're not ashamed. And that's a picture of the Lord's Supper, is that we gather together around this table to remember what Jesus has done 
to be fed by this little bit of bread and this little bit of juice as a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. So we never live in shame. So no matter what you've ever done in your whole life, if you're trusting in Jesus, you don't live in shame. No matter what you said this morning on the way to church, no matter what you thought, you don't live in shame if you have Jesus. Because you can come to him. When he comes to you, you acknowledge, yes, Lord, I'm sorry for what I did, but he's going to receive you. He's going to welcome you. He's going to embrace you and love you. And then because of that, then what happens? You live an empowered life. That's the next part of the gospel. Verse 16 continues on. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. It's not just for Jewish people who have been given the law. It's not just for religious people who live in America. right? It's not for just a few servants for everyone who believes. The message of Jesus is not a, a, uh, an American message, right? It's a gospel message that has gone out all over the world, and it empowers us to live with hope and joy so that as our default mode of operation becomes more gospel-oriented, then we live with power. What does that look like? Well, I, first of all, it acknowledges that we can't do this in our own power, right? And there's a lot of times that we look to certain things to give us power, to give us significance, right? You know, stand up for yourself. Um, if, you, if you look to, if you have a financial uh, resource, then you've got power in this world. That's a big one in our culture today, is the people, that, you know, the men and women in power have a lot of money, right? That's what we often hear or say that that idea is implicit. So the more money you have, the more power you have, essentially. The problem is, though, that you'll never have uh, more money. I mean, I think there's like, there's only one Jeff Bezos, right? He, is he the richest guy? I don't know. But what power does he really have? He can get your packages to you on time, maybe. But is he living an empowered life? I don't know. But do we really have power? You think about this church that's in, the, in, in Rome. Where were they? They're at the epicenter of culture, of military, of fi the financial center of the world. And Paul is speaking to them about their faith. Because guess what happened? Does Rome rule the world anymore? No. Not since, what, 476? Is that the year that Rome fell? It's been a long time since Rome has been in power. And yet at one moment, everyone thought Rome is the most powerful thing that's ever going to be and is always going to be. And guess what? That's not how it, it is. There have been many, many different empires and countries that have come forward. And right, hey, who's the superpower now? There used to be two, and now there's one. Is America always going to be in power throughout all time and space and history if we look back at history? Yes or no? no? No, good answer. No, America will not always be in power. And we probably need to get used to that at some point. It may not happen in our lifetime, but it's going to happen if we look at history. And so when America loses its power, should we be concerned? Maybe. Maybe not. Paul is not saying to the church in Rome, fight back and get your power back. He's saying follow Jesus and trust in Jesus because he has eternal power that will last forever. So don't look to money or to government or to military to fight your battles. Trust in Jesus. That doesn't mean that we don't act as good citizens and take our role as voters, as people who want to influence culture and, and get involved in politics or get involved in art or, or media, or whatever. We, we are called to be citizens of this world and to do our responsibility, of course. 
But we're not looking to a political solution to solve the problems of this day. Just look at Afghanistan. There's not a military solution over there as much as we've tried for 20 years. But there is a gospel solution because the gospel changes lives. It reorients us from looking to things for our significance and our power to looking to Jesus. So then we can use our money as a, as a vehicle for transformation. We can release it. We can share it. We can use it to encourage and impact other people. Because you see, who is the most powerful person that's ever existed? It's the number one Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? Say it with me. Jesus. I submit to you that Jesus was the most powerful person in all of time. And what did he do with his power? He gave it away. He laid it down. He used it to serve others. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so if we are uh, to be like Jesus, to be followers of Jesus, then we are called to, as we are able, to the best of our ability, in light of the gospel, to live as Jesus lived. And that means to use our power, to use our strength to serve and to care, to make space for people who don't have any power, to care for the vulnerable, to care for the weak, That's what Jesus did. And if we want to be like Jesus, we should be doing what Jesus did. And what a gift it is. Because if you take your power and you you try to get more power, then you're consumed with getting more power. But if you release your power, if you release your resources, if you release your time and your energy and your passion to serve others, what do you get? You become empowered. Because then you realize that, yeah, we should be involved in our political process. There's no question about that. But we realize, you know what? In the end, it doesn't matter who the president is because Jesus is Lord of the universe. Presidents only last four to eight years. I mean, the Roman Caesar was 50, 60, 70, a long, long time. But they don't, we barely can remember who their names were. But Jesus' name is being remembered forever. So if we want to align ourselves with the true power, then we're going to do what Jesus has called us to do. We're going to align ourselves with Jesus. And the way we do that, Right? Is that, you know, again, you've been given a, a default operating system. And the problem with your default operating system is the same one as it is mine. Is that our default operating system, when your phone, when your computer came to you, like if you bought it from Apple or from Dell or whatever, it came and it was functioning properly. The problem is your heart came to you and it's got a bug in it. It's got a massive defect that affects every aspect of how your oper- operating system runs. And that defect is sin. Right? We inherited that from Adam, and we've also um, demonstrated it with our own choices. But the cure to that, the, uh, the, the software that you download to fix that problem in our default operating system is the gospel. Because see, when I see what Jesus has done, when I see how he gave away his own power, then I say, Lord, I want to give away my power in the same way that you do. I confess to you that it's not my nature to do that. It's my nature to to make sure that my people and me are getting represented in the way that I want to. It's my nature to want to protect my own interests and to to build up a thing so that I can get acknowledgement and my name goes forth. It's my nature to do that. And yet Jesus, because of the gospel, because I see how glorious you were and how you laid your life down, I recognize that that's the way I'm called to live. And so, Lord, in increasing measure, bit by bit, as I look at your life, as I see what you did, and I see what it means to follow you, God, I'm going to release my power. I'm going to release my power. Now, let me do a little parenthesis here. Uh, There are situations in abusive relationships where there is an imbalance of power. 
and one person who has power abuses their relationship with another person. Now, that other person in this moment, I'm not talking about that person releasing and giving up their power. In an abusive and unhealthy relationship, the person who has less power needs to find help, needs to go to a safe place so that those things can be balanced. In those situations, in an abusive marriage, then there needs to be help given to the person who doesn't have power. That's a different kind of thing, and I'm talking about that in a different way. But for the rest of us, we have power. We ought to be able to, to give it away. You see, Paul was able to do that. We think about the, the, the changes that he was able to bring. Because right, you know, the, the city of Rome for hundreds of years has become the, the, the center of Christianity. We recognize that it, it's, you know, got off track. And that's why the Protestant Reformation took place. But it became a significant place for the faith. Because the gospel was embedded in this community. And they were giving their life away. And the last thing uh, that this uh, text, I think, reveals to us is that we, we do this uh, by faith. Verse, verse 17. Let's look at verse 17 again. For in, it, the, for in it, the gospel, that is, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I want to just do a quick sidebar here because this is something that Paul does in this text that he's going to do a lot more throughout the book of Romans is that he says look at that he says as it is written as it is written what does that mean as it is written it means that someone wrote this before he's referring back to the Old Testament and Paul does this a lot why because the Old Testament was Paul's Bible he didn't have the New Testament he was immersed in the Old Testament and as he's teaching us about our relationship with God and our relationship with the church and our relationship with others, he's constantly going back to the Old Testament. So he says, as it is written. And here he's referring to a verse in Habakkuk chapter 2. And I'm going to read that to you. Habakkuk chapter 2 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. And what's amazing to me is that the gospel message that we believe came with Jesus actually has been embedded in the Old Testament from the beginning. That God always relates to his people by faith. And that means it's not based on what you do. It's not based on your always what God has done on our behalf. And what's going on in Habakkuk is pretty fascinating because Habakkuk is saying in verse 111, uh, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Oh, cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? What the prophet is saying is, God, why are you not acting in a world of despair? Right? Wouldn't we love to see God come down and, and right every wrong and make everything the way that it's supposed to be? And we would say, God, why are you not doing that? And sometimes God is silent. And we don't have the answer to a really difficult situation. And we can't just say, well, there's got to be a reason. Well, maybe there is, but we may never know. God, why aren't you working to heal this relationship? Why aren't you working in our culture to bring people back to God? Why aren't you doing the things that you say in your word that you're promising to do? Why aren't you doing them? And God doesn't answer. And sometimes he doesn't give us the answer that we want. You've experienced this in your own life. You've gone through something hard. You're going through something hard and you're asking God to do something and he hasn't done anything about it yet. And what Habakkuk is reminding us to do is to, 
is to ask God, say, yes, Lord, please work on my behalf. But the Lord says to him, the righteous will live by faith. And then here Paul picks up on this idea as he's encouraging the church in Rome. Because Paul is saying to the church in Rome, and he's saying to the church in Memphis, and he's saying to you, the righteous will live by faith. You may not know all that I'm doing, God says in Habakkuk, I'm doing something you've never seen before. It just doesn't seem like it to us. But that doesn't mean that we don't believe in the God who is. The God who is over all time, who over all space, who has seen all the, all the leaders of the nations go up and then go down. And yet Jesus is still on the throne. And so whatever it is right now that you are dealing with in your life, whatever uncertainty, whatever thing that gives you anxiety, whatever sense of loss or frustration or bitterness that you're experiencing, God wants to say to you, live by faith. What does that mean? It means trust in me. Don't try to scramble and come up with a solution. Don't feel afraid. Don't be anxious. But trust in me. I am working throughout history to accomplish my purposes, to bring my glory to bear in your life. You know, last week I mentioned uh, about uh, St. Augustine and how he was affected by Romans. In 1515, another professor was overtaken by a similar spiritual crisis. Like everyone in medieval Christendom, Martin Luther had been brought up in the fear of God, fear of death, fear of judgment, and hell. But the surest, because the surest way to gain heaven, it was thought was to become a monk. Martin Luther did so at, in 1505 at the age of 21. He entered into the Augustinian cloister at Erfurt. He prayed and fasted, sometimes days on end, and he adopted all these extreme measures. He would go into the, the confessional booth for hours to confess all of his sins. He wrote later, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. He probed every resource of contemporary Catholicism to, to comfort his anguished heart. But nothing pacified his conscience. But then he was appointed professor of Bible at Wittenberg, and he was studying the Psalms and this very verse. And at first he was angry with God. He confessed because he seemed that God was a terrifying judge more than a merciful Savior. Where could he find a gracious God? What could Paul mean in Romans 1.17 when he said the righteousness of God was revealed in the gospel? He says what he says and how it was resolved. I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans and nothing stood to the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through mercy, that Jesus justifies us by faith. We encounter the policeman. The shame comes out. But the policeman is not just someone who brings the law. The, the policeman is someone who actually is able to bring justice. He takes on the justice and he gives us freedom. Thereupon I my, myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. 
God is a God of justice and judgment. But he's come not to condemn, but to give life. As you and I entrust ourselves to him, we will lose our shame. We'll live in an unashamed way. We'll then have power that we can face the challenges of this world, but also to give away. And we can, by faith, live in a broken world. Have you experienced this gateway into heaven? To the person of Jesus, whose life and death we'll celebrate in but a moment. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.